National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues that affect American national security. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, which is meeting this year from October 24th to the 26th at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington, Minnesota. And now your host, John Olson. Good morning, everyone. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. We get together every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security, and we're fortunate enough to be joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us learn more about American national security. This is a final reminder for those of you who live in the Northfield area. There's a faculty panel on the global struggle between the liberal democracies and the rising autocracies on the world on Thursday, tomorrow, November 3rd, from 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. at Carleton College. The event is uh, free, open to the public, and there will be pizza. Uh, the panel will convene in the brand-new Hassenstab Hall on the Carleton College campus. Believe me, you don't want to miss it. So we start in November with another show covering one of the partners <clears throat> in the U.S. intelligence community. My guess is that most people would not think of the Federal Bureau of Investigation as a key member of the intelligence community, but it is a vitally important member. The work done inside the national security branch of the FBI covers a wide range of national security threats to the United States. Our guest today is an expert in federal law enforcement and served in very senior leadership positions in the FBI, and she's going to help us to learn more about the FBI's role as a member of the U.S. intelligence community. Until her recent retirement, Special Agent Jill Sanborn served as the Executive Assistant Director of the FBI's National Security Branch, leading all aspects of the FBI's national security law enforcement and intelligence community missions. Prior to her appointment to the National Security Branch, Special Agent Sanborn served as the Assistant Director for the Counterterrorism Division inside the National Security Branch itself. Jill Sanborn uh, moved to that role after serving as the special agent in charge of the Minneapolis Division. Entering duty with the FBI in 1998 with initial assignments in Phoenix, Arizona, Jill Sanborn was assigned to the Joint Terrorism Task Force in Phoenix, Phoenix until the attacks on September 11, 2001. She remained with the JTTF until 2006 when she was selected for the Counterterrorism Division's fly team. She had a wide variety of CT positions, counterterrorism positions, during her career, including a 2010 appointment to the CIA's Counterterrorism Center as the Acting Deputy Director for Law Enforcement. And she also was the Assistant Special Agent in charge of the Los Angeles Field Office during the San Bernardino, California terrorist attack. Ms. Sanborn graduated from the University of Portland with a Bachelor's of Business Administration and Finance, and prior to joining the FBI, she served as an investigator at, at the Los Alamos uh, National Laboratory. Special Agent Sanborn has received both the CIA's George H.W. Bush Award for Excellence in Counterterrorism and a Meritorious Presidential Rank Award for her years of exceptional leadership, accomplishments, and service to the United States. Special Agent Jill Sanborn, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Happy to be here. And where are you sitting this morning? I'm sitting in Arizona. At a home office, I can see, since we're on Zoom together. <laughs> at a home office, yes. All right. And so you just retired back in uh, mid-April uh, of this year, is that right? That is correct. All right. So you're still fresh. We've got lots of great information from you uh, that we can tap into. I have so many questions for you this morning. I hope we were able to get to all them all. But I want to begin a little bit with a uh, background on your career path. What was it that drew you to apply to the Federal Bureau of Investigation and, and specifically on the special agent track, since there are a number of tracks uh, for the FBI? Yeah, absolutely. Great question. Uh, I'd really say the first two fall into two categories. So 
I grew up in Montana, a small town, and in 1987, I was very fortunate to be afforded an opportunity to serve the United States Senate as a Senate page. And through that process, I really opened my eyes to what service was all about, um, opened my eyes to the importance of oversight, et cetera. And so that really sort of set my um, agenda for what I wanted to be in the future to do something in public service. Um, out of college, I followed my father to Los Alamos National Laboratory, as you mentioned. And at the laboratory, I worked fraud, waste, and abuse investigations. And I worked really closely with the Department of Energy Inspector General when those cases would um, rise to, say, a criminal level. And I was fortunate enough to work with a very um, interesting person in my life who really believed in me and thought a lot about what I had to contribute. And so he was an, an agent for the Department of Energy. And as he and I were working a lot of our cases together, he was applying to the FBI and he mentioned that I should apply along with him. And the immediate thing that crossed my mind was there is no way the FBI would be interested in somebody like me. It took me five years to get through college. I'm a horrific speller. You know, I'm just <laughs> Joe, you know, tiny citizen from Montana. But his encouragement in me, and I think that's an important for people to understand how important those little instances in your life can be, really encouraged me to apply. Um, he and I applied and we both got in about a year apart from each other and stayed great friends throughout the whole process. Once in the FBI, really 9-11, which you mentioned, and you know, putting me into the terrorism investigative side of the FBI uh, made me realize national security was where I wanted to be. Uh, I wanted to dedicate my time in the FBI to trying to be a part of ensuring that something like that would never happen again. And I definitely knew that was a tough task and I knew there would be misses, but I still remember 9-11 like it was yesterday. And I was really determined to, to push myself to have the dedication, confidence, something I think that's really important for agents in the Bureau and analysts, quite honestly, and intellectual curiosity to always sort of be asking questions, self-drive and probably one of the most important grit was really to do those things on behalf of the American people to try to make sure that nothing like that ever happened again. So I just close this part by saying, if any of the listeners are looking for a career in the FBI, it's not just agents and what that's what I chose to do because of my investigative experience. There's everything in the FBI. There's analysts and there's everything that you can think of in a private organization. So we have human resource department. We have folks that sit at the laboratory and do fingerprinting and fabric analysis and solve crimes for us down at the laboratory. There's program management. There's folks that help drive us strategically that actually talk about strategy and, and come up with our strategy for the future. Administration spots. And believe it or not, we even have doctors and nurses inside the FBI. So if you're looking for a career where every day you'll feel like you're doing something larger than yourself and for America, the FBI is definitely a great place to think about. And and that seems to be sort of a common thread against uh, among a lot of people who choose uh, service uh, in the national security arena is this desire to serve a cause much bigger than yourself. Absolutely. Uh, so, Jill, the FBI has diversified significantly over the past few decades, uh, but I would imagine there were probably still some hurdles for you to overcome as you rose through the ranks in the FBI. Can you talk a little bit about leadership, a little more about mentorship and professionalism uh, inside the FBI now that you've had a bit of time to reflect on your career? Yeah, that, that too, is a, a is a great question. And, and I would start by first saying, in general, I really believe the only true obstacle that I faced in my 24 years in the FBI was myself. 
I don't think that I ever felt like I faced an obstacle that the organization or my coworkers put in front of me. And I think that's really important because uh, I was the first female assistant director for the counterterrorism division. So that really never dawned on me until after I got that spot, the significance of it. Uh, in general, I think the leadership inside the FBI, you might not, I mean, it's like every other organization. You might not find that every leader inside the organization <laughs> is a model for a leadership book, maybe myself included, but I can say that the vast majority of those that I worked for were, the majority of them were men. The majority of them taught me the importance of the people, you know, mission, men, and me sort of in that order and the people around you and how important taking care of those people was. And so I was really fortunate to have great leaders, great mentors. And again, like I said, mostly men um, and really because of their investment in me and my not wanting to let them down, I really always pushed myself to do as whatever I could for them, but also really push myself to then give back to others and to be that same leader and that same mentor that I felt they were to me. And when you talk about the importance of the people, like the whole organization as a whole is so important and the people that work things with you. My husband has a great saying that I didn't wake up one day on third base and think it was because I hit a triple. It was really because of all the people that came before me and all the people that came after me that got me to third base. So that's really a key for me in leadership is the people and thinking about it in that aspect. I also think an important thing that I've learned from leaders inside the organization and I tried to emulate was don't lose sight of the fact that the people around you have valuable insights. You'll, you'll hear the FBI talk a lot about diversity and how we're trying to be a very diverse organization. Oftentimes, I think people think including others' thoughts takes away from your thoughts or position. I actually believe it enhances it. I think it brings diversity to a situation. And I really think back to what we talked about in the beginning of this, which is it brings people along with you, right? It's our role as leaders to try to educate, mentor, and bring those up. And back to kind of what I said in the beginning about my obstacle was maybe myself. I think something I would say to folks is I grew up in a house where I was the only girl. I had three older brothers. And so honestly, I never saw myself as different. I lacked a little self-confidence. And that's probably why I say uh, my only obstacle was myself. But I think never thinking of myself as different uh, to those in the room was a key for me in where I got in the FBI. So I think just remembering that, you know, you can do whatever you want to do is very important. I do remember vividly when a female employee stopped me in the hallway, and this is really where I learned the importance of being a leader for the women watching me, stopped me in the hallway one day and mentioned to me how important and how much it meant to them to see a female leader, you know, sitting at the table full of executives and to be a leader that they thought was confident, but also humble. And so I really walked away from that experience understanding not only my role as a leader in general, but how important it was for me that every female watching me, you know, saw that they could do the same thing. They could sit at that table 10 years after me. Yeah, that's a <clears throat> That's a great point. That's a great point. Uh, let's let's go ahead and jump into our topic for today, if we could. Uh, Special Agent Sanborn, how is the FBI organized? <laughs> I, th that's a big question, but maybe we could just hit the major branches uh, of the FBI, and then we'll focus in on the branch that you led before you retired. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll hit them real quickly. So we have an intel branch that obviously is responsible for all things intelligence for the organization. We have a science and technology branch and an information and technology branch, which I'll talk about them together because they really do go hand in hand with each other. 
these two are really responsible for inside and outside the organization, making sure that we're innovative and we have the tools and technology that we need, not only to combat our adversaries, but also inside the organization to make sure that we have systems that help us do our job, that we have systems that are resilient, you know, that we're safe in our cyber hygiene, all those kinds of things. So those two branches really go hand in hand in that aspect. We have an HR branch, which is everything human resources, facilities, budgeting. And then we have two operational branches. One is cyber, criminal cyber response and services branch. So they often call it CCRSB. And that really is everything on the criminal side that the FBI investigates. So public corruption cases, civil rights, violent crime fugitives that we work with the marshals, bank fraud. It's also our critical incident response group. So the people that respond, you know, our SWAT teams, et cetera, the hostage rescue team. It also has our international operations department, which is all of our legats that are all over the world. You know, folks oftentimes think the FBI is only a domestic organization. They don't realize that we have an extraterritorial jurisdiction and we actually have FBI agents assigned all over the globe in these legal attache spots. And then again, of course, it's got cyber. And then the last branch, the one that I oversaw, national security branch that has counterterrorism, counterintelligence, weapons of mass destruction, and also the terror screening center. Okay. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired FBI Special Agent Jill Sanborn, and we're discussing the National Security Branch of the FBI, which, Jill, leads me right into that question. Uh, let's move to the National Security Branch and talk about that branch. W what exactly is the National Security Branch? How is that branch organized, and what missions fall under this branch of the FBI? Yeah, the National Security Branch is responsible for really everything that has to do with the country's national security as it relates to, you know, domestically protecting us domestically. And so it includes counterterrorism, you know, protecting the country from counterterrorism threats, counterintelligence, protecting the country from our foreign adversaries, weapons of mass destruction, making sure that we know what our adversaries might be doing, that weapons don't get in to the wrong hands, et cetera. And then the terror screening center, which really grew out of 9-11, which is to make sure that as an intelligence community, when we know that we have adversaries, particular terrorism, that are potentially wanting to do the country harm, that we have a way to watch list them and keep them. Potentially, we could have kept the 9-11 hijackers for coming in if we had had a system like that back then. So really, these, these divisions carry out the FBI's responsibility as the lead intelligence and law enforcement agency in the nation. And really, the goal of those divisions detect, deter, and disrupt national security threats to the United States and our interests. The goal really of all of those divisions is to collect, analyze, and share. Share is a very important part of us um, to develop a comprehensive understanding in order to defeat the national security threats out there, while also, and this is very important, preserving civil liberties. So the national security branch, is that, uh, that, is that just people at headquarters, uh, FBI headquarters, or is it sort of parsed around all the different uh, field divisions as well? Yeah, that, that's a great question on how the FBI does business in general. So headquarters is sort of a oversight and program management function. They do not run the investigations and the cases. However, if you think about the oversight, everybody in the national security branch sort of umbrella would include those agents that are in the field offices doing the work because at headquarters, we would have the oversight and the program management um, responsibility over what they're doing. So it's about I don't know, probably a third of the FBI falls into 
working the, the national security mission, either from the agents and analysts to the support side and then the oversight at headquarters. So the, so the special agents in charge, like you were, of the Minneapolis uh, Field Division, they're still ultimately responsible for those investigations in the field? Absolutely. Okay. So after September 11th, and I talked about this just a little bit in my interview or in my introduction for you, uh, September 11th, 2001, the CT mission really became kind of all-encompassing for the FBI, a- a- as it did for much of the U.S. intelligence community as a whole. I was about halfway through my Navy intel career uh, when that uh, terrible event happened. Uh, but but then much much of your career path was dedicated to the counterterrorism mission. I, I mean, I, I didn't I didn't cover everything, but uh, it's an extraordinary amount of experience in the counterterrorism world. Uh, can you please talk more specifically about the CT mission at the FBI? Maybe a little bit more about what the joint terrorism task forces are that have been established around the nation and how good has the FBI become at finding terrorists or, or violent extremist threats to America, whether they be from abroad or uh, domestic? Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, many might look at the news today and think, boy, we don't hear a lot about terrorism anymore in, in the news, and therefore it might not pose the threat that it did 10, 20 years ago. That's not true. Um, I think part of the reason you don't hear a lot about terrorism in the news today is one of the things you mentioned, which is the FBI combined with all of our partners, uh, Intel community, uh, small police departments, and even communities, quite honestly, have done a good job trying to partner and prevent and disrupt plots before they happen. And so I think oftentimes that success in that avenue then does not rise to the level of quote unquote news. And so I think that's one thing that is important to point out that we do not believe that the threat from terrorism has diminished. In fact, we think it's it's just evolved and probably more complex. And because of that, protecting the United States from terrorist attacks is still today the FBI's number one priority. So it still is the number one priority for the FBI because of the threat that it poses and probably most importantly, because of the cost of getting that wrong. That doesn't mean that there aren't other threats that are as important or that take up a lot of time, at least in the national security realm. So for example, I had a former boss that talked about terrorism is the threat of today and and obviously a very lethal threat and something that is our utmost priority. But the counterintelligence threat from foreign adversaries like Russia and China is the threat that we're gonna leave our grandkids. It's affecting our way of life, our economy, et cetera, everything. And so that too is very, very important. So. I did dedicate a lot of my career to counterterrorism because of the urgency of that threat, right? And I said early on, that's what I wanted to sort of do after 9-11. I think you mentioned the JHTFs, and it's a good point place to point out their importance and kind of where they were established. So a lot of people think the Joint Terrorism Task Forces grew out of 9-11, that we really didn't have that concept until the events of 9-11. It's not true. Um, the Joint Terrorism Task Force actually started in New York in the 1980s, and it was actually in response to a domestic terrorism issue that they were trying to deal with there. And I think it was about 10 police officers and 10 agents. So it's been around for quite some time. However, the power of it and the evolution of it really exploded after 9-11. I think we, eyes wide open, became so aware of the power of partnerships after 9-11 and the JTTF. And so every field office has those JTTFs and quite honestly, in some field offices, depending on how large the span of their area of responsibility could be, there's multiple JTTFs per field office. And so 
every single day, your FBI agents and analysts are working side by side with tons of state and local partners, other intelligence community partners, foreign governments like the United Kingdom, Canada, you name it, uh, to try to stay ahead of the threat. We really couldn't have any of the successes that you talked about without those task forces and partnerships. They're really the foundation of absolutely everything we do in the FBI. In fact, they've grown beyond the terrorism threat. And it's really how everything gets addressed in the FBI today. There's cyber task forces, gang task forces, safe streets, safe trails, counterintelligence. So it's really grown into absolutely every threat that we talk about. At the end of your question, you asked something interesting, which is how good has the FBI and others come at tackling terrorism? And that's a very interesting and I think reminder to us question. So while the FBI can be and should be very proud of the successes that they've had since 9-11 in the last 20 years, and you can see that by the sheer number of arrests and disruptions, we can't ever become too comfortable with that because we've also seen attacks, right? We've had San Bernardino, we've had Pensacola, we've had the attack on Pulse nightclub. In the counterterrorism mission, I think it's important that you have to aim for perfection. It's a no-fail mission, and we can never become too, quote-unquote, comfortable to use the word you use because, again, because of the cost of getting it wrong. You know, threats evolved, and we should evolve, and we should always be challenging ourselves who work in the national security arena to challenge ourselves to evolve. And again, never become comfortable with the fact that we think we've become pretty good at this. And maybe I'm unique in this, and maybe I had a mom who was an Olympian, um, and so she always pushed us to do better, do more. And so I'm the kind of person that always thinks that no matter how good we've become at something, we should always be striving to be better. And for that reason, I've always been the kind of person that welcomes after actions, oversight. It only can help us improve. It's really welcomed, and, and, and we can't challenge ourselves to, to evolve with the threats if we don't do that. For example, I remember vividly the after action that we did after San Bernardino. And a lot of people think that that investigation was done well and that, you know, people should be proud of the way that was handled. Obviously, we would have loved to have prevent it from happening, period. But going through that after action process really opened my eyes to things that I personally and the organization could do differently, if not better. And not only was that important for us that worked it, but then going around and sharing that with others. So my counterpart um, in Florida had just sat through training for ASACs to go through critical incidents like San Bernardino, where I talked about the San Bernardino attack. And literally the next week, the Pulse nightclub happened. Mm. And so he talks when he talks about that and covering that, how important those after actions and sharing and how much that helped him then respond to a critical incident. And so I think challenging ourselves to always improve because no matter how good we did, we can do better. And sharing that is really important. And that's really a, a leadership function to set that tone, right? So that we can be open and honest about areas where we may not have performed as well as we should have or could have. Uh, and you have to set up a uh, sort of an environment where people feel safe to share their own mistakes uh, or talk about things that they could have done better that maybe a a more senior agent could have done something better, but a more junior agent because they have the, the cover from leadership to really talk openly about uh, how to improve things. Is, is that a good summary? 100%. You have to have 
the environment where self-reflection, pointing out shortcomings, weaknesses are welcomed and safe for us to be able to do that and learn from it 100%. Yeah, during my career in the Navy, I think uh, the best leaders that I saw and served under always set that kind of an environment so people could feel uh, safe to, t to speak their minds about things. That, that's very helpful. Uh, you served here as the special agent in charge of the Minneapolis office uh, when you were talking about the role that uh, the FBI has in sort of a global counterterrorism effort. Uh, just to talk a little bit more about those connections to abroad, uh, a lot of the Joint Terrorism Task Force work that was done here in, in uh, the Minneapolis division was actually focused on uh, al-Shabaab in Somalia and even the Islamic State in uh, Syria and Iraq. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that? Absolutely. So a couple things. Um, it, Minneapolis was definitely one of the places in the country that had a lot of individuals travel over to Somalia with the intent to fight. And so it really was one of the top field offices in volume and the talent and dedication. And honestly, some of this comes from Minneapolis's background going back to 9-11. I mean, they had a key case um, in the Massawi investigation that I think they learned early on how to really drive and have that grit and intelligence curiosity that a uh, and intelligence and investigative curiosity that I mentioned to you previously. And so because they had the volume, they had that expertise that they brought from years of working terrorism was really instrumental in them bringing a lot of those cases to fruition. Um, unfortunately, a handful of those folks that traveled over there uh, to fight lost their lives over there. And that to me is very sad. Uh, wish that they wouldn't have gone in the first place and wish that, you know, they wouldn't have lost their lives. But Minneapolis was definitely front and center of being able to tackle that threat problem and is really, you know, collectively in what they cover. Minnesota also, the Minneapolis field office also covers North and South Dakota. So it's a huge AOR with a wide variety of threats. Um, and they truly are very good at what they do in that field office. Yeah, that's a great point. So uh, just for our uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired FBI Special Agent Jill Sandmore, and we're discussing the National Security Branch of the FBI. And as you've probably noted, we are sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. If you want to learn more about next year's Cybersecurity Summit, go to www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so let's continue on, if we could, uh, Special Agent Jill Sanborn. Uh, you recently retired from the FBI. We just covered the counterterrorism functions of the FBI as a mission set of the National Security Branch. How about the counterintelligence mission for the FBI? You briefly mentioned that a little while ago because it is a long-term strategic challenge for us. What is counterintelligence, and how does the FBI carry out that mission? What, what challenges does the FBI have in protecting American national security against an array of other nations that are constantly seeking to penetrate our national security apparatus? Yeah, you know, counterintelligence is in working to expose and prevent intelligence activities against the United States. And so that really is the mission of the counterintelligence division inside the FBI, to expose, penetrate, investigate intelligence activities in the United States. And it's really to protect the secrets of the intel community, to protect our critical assets like advanced technology, sensitive information. It also is to counter the activities of foreign spies here in the United States, and really also to keep weapons of mass destruction from falling into the wrong hands. I would say some of the challenges with the counterintelligence problem set threat mission are 
same thing we talked about earlier, which is the threats evolve and our adversaries evolve and they are resilient. And so if you think back to what we might have thought counterintelligence did 20 years ago, it would be finding spy on spy, right? Those military intelligence officers that would come and or recruit people in the United States to collect information on our military activities or our government activities. It's evolved incredibly, which is one of the challenges for the intelligence community in tackling it. They no longer rely on the intelligence officers of past. Um, they use what we call non-traditional collectors. And so our adversaries have learned how to collect on us as a country with everything from cyber activities into our organizations, into our government, to recruiting uh, non-traditional collectors. So employees at organizations, tourists that travel here. You know, one of the things I read that is sort of a dated way of thinking about the intelligence uh, threat that we face, I thought was really interesting as you think about China, and it'll give you a good idea of what I mean when I say non-traditional collector. If the United States, Russia, and China were both tasked with collecting intelligence on Minneapolis, for example, <laughs> or the water around uh, Lake Minnetonka, the sand there, we would go about it different ways. The Russians would probably, you know, storm the beach of the lake <laughs> and try to figure out you know, their intelligence that way. The Americans would probably use SIGINT collection. We'd probably fly a bunch of things overhead and try to get our, our intelligence collection from SIGINT platforms, where the Chinese would send a bunch of tourists to Minneapolis, send them to the lake, have them put down their beach towels and hang out there. And then when they came back, shake out all those towels and piece together all the sand and have the intelligence that they need, right? When you think about what our foreign adversaries are doing and how they're collecting, that for me is a great way to think about it. Oftentimes corporations think, I don't have technology that would be that quote unquote interesting for a foreign government and therefore I shouldn't have to worry. But in China's mind in particular, your corporation is just one piece of sand in their effort to piece together what they need to, to not compete with us in sort of a democratic norm sense and out compete us. Like, I think we would all welcome sort of, you know, healthy competition and who has best technology and advancement, but they're stealing it. And they're stealing it from small companies across the country, bankrupting companies for the benefit of a foreign adversary. And so I think that probably gives you a little bit of picture of what we're facing and why that makes that so challenging. So just the sheer volume of how they're collecting, the non-traditional way they're collecting, and that their collection knows no limits really puts the intelligence community and the FBI in a tough position to try to do what we can to counter that. So could you so there's two two specific areas in counterintelligence then from what I'm what I'm hearing you talk about. There's the industrial espionage, which is sort of a, a tremendously damaging to America's economic output. But there's also the the national security espionage where they may go after military secrets or uh, secrets about how the FBI operates uh, from on a counterintelligence or a counterterrorism mission, uh, et cetera. Uh, two, two main areas of counterintelligence function. Do I have that right? Yes, you do. Okay. Uh, any idea how much economic damage uh, is done on a yearly basis just by Ministry of State Security in China for e economic uh, or industrial espionage? Now, I don't have like a quantity for you, but... 
the volume of cases that the FBI opens on a daily, weekly basis is is alarming. And so I would just say the volume of what we're looking into, while I can't give you an overall quantity, is really alarming. So I would say that. Um, and then I think if you just went through the news and sort of glanced through the number of stories where a private sector corporation inside the United States was harmed because of these efforts, that's fairly alarming too. Uh, the FBI made a great video that's out on the internet called made in beijing and i think it it goes through three or four different scenarios of corporations that lost their vitality like lost their everything because of the collection uh, and theft from the chinese government and and that's kind of a great depiction of what we're facing i don't have an actual overall volume for you though I, I did hear that uh, on average, the FBI is opening a new uh, counterintelligence case against the Chinese about every 12 hours. Is that is that true? <laughs> uh, I believe that's what the um, FBI director has said in his most recent testimony. So, yes, uh, true. And as you can imagine, alarming. Yeah. Uh, so, so Jill, I want to co combine two uh, topics here, the counterterrorism mission and the counterintelligence mission. And uh, I want to ask you about the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act that was passed back in 1978. Uh, that was uh, passed primarily to, to deal with some of the challenges that happened during the Vietnam War uh, time frame, sort of abuses in the intelligence community. But what it really did is it set up a, an entire system of foreign intelligence uh, surveillance courts, court system, uh, with judges that were appointed by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court uh, to oversee a lot of these counterintelligence uh, uh, investigations. And that also was used in the counterterrorism investigation side. Could you talk a little bit about the how the how a FISA warrant is obtained by the FBI to investigate things that are happening here in the United States? Yeah, in a in a fairly, you know, simplistic sense, you have a case and a case agent and they're putting together the facts that they're collecting in that case. And as they're putting together the, ta the, the facts and also facing like, how do we prevent this threat? So if you use a CT threat, for an example, you might have somebody here in the United States that we think is about ready to conduct an attack. So we're gathering as much information on that individual and their intentions as possible. And part of the FISA process is taking those facts, building them into an application and that building into an application really comes hand in hand with a couple important key participants. One is the people that sit at both DOJ headquarters and FBI headquarters. And what makes them important in that process is really, they see the whole world, right? Like I in say Phoenix, Arizona, when I was a case agent, am only seeing and collecting the intelligence really right in front of me. Where those that sit in Washington and and see much bigger intelligence collection see the whole world, and so they play an important part in helping paint the picture of what this person's true intentions are and how concerned we should be. And so all of those facts go into an application, and then that application goes before the FISA court and gets approved or not approved. And it really is an important tool for the FBI. I can think of numerous plots and threats that I personally was involved in that we really wouldn't have been able to get inside what the true intention of the person was without that FISA collection. And it really allowed us to get ahead of them heading off to say a Home Depot or a whatever to do their attack. And so the collection there is a very important tool on the process. I think it's a very detailed, thorough process. I know you're reading the paper about, you know, errors that the FBI has made. I think they, FBI 
has welcomed again back to my comment early on the oversight on that and is this current director is is making reforms to make sure that we have processes in place that don't allow for mistakes in the FISA process but it's an incredibly important tool and it doesn't just hit you mentioned counterintelligence and counterterrorism it's also a very important tool in the cyber investigations and in trying to figure out what our foreign adversaries are trying to get into here in the United States and so in fact cyber might be where it gets used the most in today's world. There are challenges with that collection because 10 years ago, all of our adversaries were talking in some sort of online telephone, some sort of tech aspect. While they still do that today, a lot of those comms could be encrypted. So encryption has changed our ability to collect on maybe the plans and intentions of our foreign adversary. And so I think while we still have the tool and it's very important you might see the use of it less or the fruits of it less because we're also now faced with encryption. And so you have an encryption uh, dilemma in there that is definitely a challenge for law enforcement. As, as I understand the, the FISA process, and I obviously never never tried to get a FISA warrant approved, but uh, there are tremendous checks and balances in that whole process before the FISA court uh, issues a warrant. And it's only for a limited period of time, right? Like 90 days or something like that. So you, you have to build a case enough in that 90 days, get enough additional information to get another FISA warrant for another 90 days, and et cetera, et cetera. So there are many checks and balances in place to protect, uh, I guess, privacy, privacy, civil rights in, in the United States for U.S. persons. Is that is it roughly what we're talking about here? I think the checks and balances do two things. Privacy is one of them, but I think it also um, is a process, the process, especially the Woods process, you'll hear about that in, in the media, is a process of making sure that we validate and verify the facts that we're relying on in the application. Okay. So to paint a picture for folks that might not understand what I'm talking about, and internal auditors will probably understand this better than most, is in the package, you go through, and there's several people that assert to this, you go through the application and every single fact that's listed in the application, you have to show proof of that. So mm. if I say something that I'm relying on something, there has to be, you know, auditors would call it tick and tie. There has to be a fact supporting that statement in the package. And that is part of the process that the director has really reformed and revised to make it, make our, our application of that checking the facts even stronger than it was, say, when I was a case agent. And so I think the the checks and balances do a couple things, privacy, but also goes through the application process, making sure that everything that we're relying on has the necessary, reliable supporting document documentation that needs to be there. Okay. So based on the what we've been talking about here for the last uh, 10, 15 minutes or so, it strikes me that the personnel inside the National Security Branch they, they've got to work really closely with uh, personnel from the, the other members of the U.S. intelligence community, CIA, DIA, NSA, et cetera. How, how hard was it to make a cultural change inside the FBI to think of the intelligence mission as being as important as the law enforcement role on which the FBI has traditionally been focused? Uh, and how important have the partnerships between the FBI and the other members of the U.S. intelligence community been during your career? Mm. Yeah, again, I think, you know, partnerships are absolutely the key for me. Um, and they really occur without thought. I remember September 12th, like it was yesterday, uh, sitting in the Phoenix office and having somebody from 
the CIA asked me if they could read something that I had written and wondering if I could share with them, right? Like having that feeling in my stomach, not knowing whether I could share with a key partner to where today that sharing and that sitting side by side and tackling the problems happens just as a matter of standard business. I would say that while change in general, like none of us like change, um, period, I think the FBI evolved very well here. And I'm very, very proud of the intelligence organization that the FBI has become. And I would say that most of the today's FBI probably doesn't view them as, as you highlighted as two separate missions, but they view them as collectively the FBI's mission. And so I think that's a very healthy place for us to be. I think, you know, a couple of years after 9-11, you might have had people inside the organization that viewed them as two distinct missions. I think today's workforce would view them as a collective FBI mission. And I think that's that's really important. And the reason I think it's important and the reason I'm glad it applies to the whole FBI is I really think it's important that the FBI can be relied on by the American people as an organization that seeks to prevent crime, mm. not simply to hold those accountable. Yeah. And so while that seems like a no brainer when you think about national security, and of course we wanna prevent the terrorist attack, I think it applies to all threats. And I think your agents and your analysts inside the FBI today also believe that. So I'll give you a personal example that will tell you a little bit about what I mean here. So my mom is 85 years old and didn't grow up with technology, trusts that everything she receives in her email is from somebody that is trustworthy and she can open <laughs> on it, she can click on it. And she came very, very close for following for something that the FBI warned um, communities about, which she would have been requesting her to transfer $50,000 to the individual. And only because of the intelligence collection inside the FBI, their diligence in writing that up and sharing it with the appropriate people, did it prevent her from transferring that $50,000. And so I think if you sit here and you think about what the American people should and want expect from expect from the FBI, I would venture to say the majority of them would think that that was admirable and, and should be our due diligence, our mission to try to prevent that, not just wait till my mom transfers $50,000 and then go arrest the person that, you know, partook in that fraud. And so I think preventing crime is something that everybody in the FBI now focuses on, not just holding those accountable. And so I think the transition, while definitely probably had hurdles in the beginning of being a, an intelligence focused organization, I think it's just ingrained in our DNA now. And like I said, I'm very proud of how we've evolved. And I think when you, if you were to talk to say our foreign governments that work closely with us, I think they would tell you that not only do they think we've done a great job for the American people, but every day the FBI is is doing something that helps protect citizens of another country as well. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is retired special FBI Special Agent Jill Sanborn, and we're discussing the National Security Branch of the FBI. Uh, so, Jill, you just went through a, a really interesting story that's linked directly to cyber. Uh, you've talked a little bit about uh, the fact that there's a, a very strong focus on the cyber uh, part of uh, operations for the FBI. But cyber is not uh, one of the primary subset missions of the national security branch, despite the fact that cyber plays such an incredible role in American national security interests. Uh, why is that? Why is it not part of the national security branch? 
and, and if I'm stepping on anybody's toes here, that is not my intent. I'm just trying to make sure that people understand, uh, you know, why cyber isn't necessarily uh, part of the national security branch. Well, first, I would say, if you think about the national security mission for the FBI, cyber is a part of the national security mission. I think if you remember in an, earlier in the conversation this morning where you asked me about the different branches inside the FBI, and I rattled off you know, the handful of things that each of those branches has in their portfolio, it's a lot. And so while it might not fall directly in a line and block chart, you know, de directly under the national security branch and under that executive assistant director, I think the important thing I would say about cyber is it is a part of the national security mission. And so while not specifically on the national security branch or org chart, of course, our foreign adversaries use it as a vector for their crime. And this is really where, again, another aspect of partnership, this is where the counterintelligence division and the cyber division, both with great expertise, right? The cyber individuals are experts in how our foreign adversary is trying to do what they're trying to do. And our counterintelligence agents and analysts are experts in why they're doing that, right? Like they're doing this from a cyber aspect, but what's the why? What's the, the real reason behind it? And it, it's those two things combined that allow us to get ahead of the threat from the foreign adversaries that are using cyber as their vector for their crime. And so while it doesn't sit under the national security branch, it is work collectively with those two divisions. And I think by having those two divisions focus on what their expertise is, rather than deal with the problem set through one lens, you're getting experts in both the why and the how, and then viewing the problem through the lens of both. And so I actually think it's a good recipe I also think that it keeps something that's very important in national security from being one of many things that the national security branch is mm. quote unquote responsible for. Yeah. And it has kind of a shared unity. But again, it is part of the actual national security mission for the FBI. Yeah. So, Joe, we have about 13 minutes left. Uh, I think I mentioned to you when, when we were prepping for the show that this hour goes by just like that. <laughs> we're down to about 13 minutes. You, you served in a very senior leadership role before you retired from the FBI. Uh, as we've talked about, unfortunately, much of the work that the FBI does and, and in law enforcement in general, it's done to investigate uh, terrible things after they've happened. Uh, what what might you say uh, about how to prevent terrible things from happening, especially in the private sector, for instance, because now that you're retired, you're you're in the private sector. Maybe what I'm asking here is how do you prevent a crisis from occurring in the first place? Any thoughts on your part as someone who's dealt with all manner of heartbreaking situations in your role as a special agent? Yeah, I'd love to say that there was like a secret recipe for, quote unquote, batting 100% on prevention. Um, and while we should strive for that, I think that that is not necessarily, we're never probably going to be in a place because of the resilience and evolution of our adversary to be where we bat perfect on that. However, we can bat a higher average. And I think that, you know, it goes back to what we talked about earlier, which is what can help us prevent, and this is so true for the private sector, is starting with intelligence and the importance of intelligence. And so intelligence isn't only important for those inside the United States government. It's important for companies and organizations to have an intelligence function because it really is the intelligence that allows you to think about the what ifs and to think about the what's around the corner. And corporations that use the intelligence they gather combined with their risk appetite and really think about how is it that this particular problem 
affects us as an organization from a risk standpoint will allow hopefully prevention, potentially mitigation of some aspect of that threat. But worst case scenario, all of that process then helps if you have to respond to something, your ability to respond to that even better than you would have. And so, for example, if you think about what's going on between China and Taiwan, companies that have an interest in that part of the world and or the supply that may be coming into their country, if they're gathering intelligence about what's going on, weighing that with how risky is what's going on now that I have the intelligence to my business function, to my supply, to how I'm able to deliver my product, whatever it might happen to be, and then planning for that, coming up with mitigation efforts, whether it's dual supply chains, whether it's pivoting parts of their business in one aspect or another, might not prevent what's going to happen in uh, China and Taiwan, but it's definitely going to help them survive that and come out better. And so I think intelligence, thinking about the what ifs, and really focusing on some what ifs that might seem low probability will help an organization have a strategy that makes them more resilient to that. And in worst case scenario, at least allows them to respond when need be better than they would have had they not thought about it. Yeah. I, you know, it's it's interesting. I, I retired almost, uh, well, a little over 11 and a half years ago now. And what I've been really surprised by is uh, there are intelligence functions that have been created in, in corporations around the country. But what I find fascinating is that a lot of times those intelligence functions are even even the cyber side of things. They're placed under the compliance uh, part of a, a of a corporation under the the lawyers that are more worried about compliance with federal uh, guidelines and rules rather than under the business operations functions so that a business can be more uh, flexible in responding to those potential threats. Have, have you did you see any of those kinds of things when you were uh, serving as an FBI special agent? Yeah, I would say that you point out a very valuable point. And I don't know that I see the success of one organization over the other and their ability to do intelligence and, and strategic risk planning that dependent on where they sit in the organization. I think it depends a lot on, and, and it, it makes me feel a little bit about the question you asked me about cyber and not, not sitting in what might be a logical spot inside the FBI. I think most important in the effectiveness of that intelligence function is how that intelligence function partners with the key stakeholders. And no matter where they sit in the organization, knowing that they are incredibly important to the operations folks and figuring out a way to have their own, you know, mini task force, mini partnership with the key people in the organization that need their expertise. And then having the support of a leadership team, right? The top executives of the company that really will at least listen to what's being presented. I think those are really the two key aspects of success mm. of that intelligence function in the private sector. Less about where it sits, more about the partnerships and, and coming, adding value to the stakeholders and then having you know a, a leadership element that really looks to that team for strategic advice. And the other thing that I think is really fascinating, is if you take a look at the situation between uh, you know Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there are corporations out there, multinational corporations, that suddenly find themselves on the front line of, uh, of these kinds of wars. And Microsoft is a great example of that. Uh, all of the security aspects of their functions in the cyber world are, are being challenged by this conflict between Russia and Ukraine. 
Uh, that's got to be something that I'm sure uh, as we go forward, the FBI will be working closely with American uh, flagged uh, companies to, to deal with that kind of a challenge. And, and on that partnership role, uh, as I mentioned at the start of this show, uh, we're doing a series of shows this fall on the U.S. intelligence community. And, and today we're talking about the FBI as a full-blown, fledged, full-fledged member of the intelligence community. Uh, you're a retired special agent. You served at the FBI. You also served for the FBI at CIA. I'm sure you dealt regularly with the National Security Agency uh, for a, a wide variety of reasons uh, while you were leading the National Security Branch. What, what thoughts do you have on, on this partnership environment that was created as a result of the Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act of 2004? I, I, I have nothing but great things to say about it. And again, I think it just becomes part of the DNA. And so I think that incredibly lucky to partner with all the organizations that you mentioned and that partnership you know when you have a group of individuals trying to solve or prevent something that is pretty grave not only makes that partnership from how we do our work incredibly strong and resilient but those partnerships go beyond just the workplace, you know, some of my dearest friends, and I know you had Mr. Darby on a couple of weeks ago. Some of my dearest friends are those that I sat side by side in, you know, quote unquote, like a foxhole uh, for the military, <laughs> trying to do something collectively together that protect the American people. And so I think everything that we did from reforming how we worked as an intelligence community in 2000 to how we work as an intelligence community now in 2022, is for the better. I think that the stovepipes, the walls, the lack of sharing, they don't exist. And I think the American people should know that it really is a task force, a team that dedicates a lot of their time and energy, you know, collectively expertise of all the organizations to try to stay ahead of the threats that face us. So, Jill, uh, we've covered a lot of ground today, just a few minutes left. Um, I always like to try and give my guests uh, sort of the last word. Uh, so I'll, I'll open up the floor to you to talk about anything else you want to talk about with regards to the, uh, the FBI, uh, the National Security Branch, uh, whatever you want to finish with, uh, the floor is yours. Yeah, I would maybe say two things. I think that the American people should be really proud of the intelligence community and the FBI's uh, particular role in that. It amazes me the number of people that sign up to protect people that they'll never meet um, and work a lot of long hours dedicated to that, oftentimes at the expense of their personal lives. And so the first thing I would say is I hope that the American people or a snippet of the show leads them to believe that they've got, you know, a great team in, in their uh side trying to do whatever they can to protect them from the threats out there. So that's the first thing. And then the, the second thing I would say is um, probably more for your listeners that are from Minnesota. Uh, one of my dearest friends back to partnerships when I was the SAC in Minnesota was the United States attorney uh, there, Erica McDonald. And she had a saying that I think about often, which is kindness is free. And one of my fondest memories about serving in Minnesota was really the fact that Minnesotans take that to heart in the Minnesota nice and it's one of the things that I miss the most about not being in Minnesota anymore. And so for the Minnesota listeners out there, um, keep up with the Minnesota nice. It's one of the things I cherish the most. So unfortunately, we've just about reached the end of our show today for National Security This Week. Uh, retired FBI Special Agent Jill Sanborn, thank you so much for joining us today. 
I do have one last question for you. Uh, there's a lot of I, I teach at the at Carleton College, but I know there's a lot of young people out there in college today who are trying to figure out what they want to do with their uh, career paths in the future. A lot of kids in high school as well. Maybe a, a parent or a grandparent listening to this show right now who might have some ideas to to share with their their loved ones who are, are looking at career paths. How would someone who's interested in becoming a special agent with the FBI go about applying for that position? Yeah, it's a great question. So back to the fact that we have people that do everything in the FBI. Every field office has a recruiter. So your closest field office to you, you definitely could reach out to that field office and ask to talk to the recruiter. But just a couple things to think about. Um, and again, back to the what I said in the beginning, there was nothing special about me. So I would <laughs> encourage anybody who is even remotely interested to pursue that and reach out to the recruiter. You know, we're, there's not a specific mold that we're looking for. Um, we'd like you to be at least 23 years old before you apply to the FBI. We'd like you to have three years of work experience, but you don't have to be worried about, I didn't major in this, or I only majored in that, or my work experience isn't law enforcement or military. It really doesn't matter. What matters is the fact that you bring a diverse thought, you made good choices in your life, and that you're interested in working for the FBI. So don't worry about what your background, your major in school, your grades, whether you could spell or not, reach out for the recruiter um, and give them a call. And early is fine. If you're not 23 yet, we have internships and, and the FBI would love to talk to you sooner than later. All right. Jill Sanborn, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And folks, that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this show, please consider tuning in to KYMN Radio at 10 a.m. on Friday mornings for public policy this week. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning. Uh, we are sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit. If you want to learn more about next year's uh, summit, look up www cybersecuritysummit.org. And before I sign off, just want to urge everyone who is eligible to vote to go vote next Tuesday. America is still the great experiment, and we only succeed as a republic when our citizens directly engage in the political process. Our body politic is only as strong as our level of participation. So please make sure you vote next Tuesday. Minnesota often tops the nation for voter turnout, but let's try to set a new record for voter turnout on November 8th. Have a great finish your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues that affect American national security. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, which is meeting this year from October 24th to the 27th at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington.